Hello, and welcome to the Market Bull Podcast. Please note, topics and stocks discussed in this podcast are not financial or investment advice. Today on the show, I spoke with Keith Delavadova, a representative and corporate manager at CPS Capital, which is a Perth-based boutique corporate finance and stockbroking firm. Keith started by dissecting the recent lithium movements globally and tackled the news from Chile about nationalising the lithium sector. We talked about the lithium spot price in China, some of the recent quarterly announcements from tier one companies, and then shifted our conversation to other areas of the market that we'll be looking to accelerate over the coming months. We looked at seasonality factors in Northern America and what this means for the second half of 2023. I hope you enjoy listening. So hello and welcome to the Markable Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Kostrich, and bringing back a regular guest of mine every month is Keith Delavadova from CPS Capital. Welcome back, Keith. Yeah, I feel like I'm becoming part of the furniture around here, Ben. L- literally. I mean, you are. You're sort of my, my go-to regular and, and you messaged me literally a few days ago um, sort of saying, yeah, it's time to talk about lithium again and, and what's been going on in the markets because, yeah, already, as expected, so much is changing month to month and, and especially in that sector, but all over. So give us a little update on, on what's happening in the lithium markets across the world. Yeah, I think the reason I messaged you was obviously with the, the news kind of coming out of Chile recently, there's a lot of questions going around. What does this mean? How does this affect things? And what are the what are the domino effects from there? So yeah, I guess the, the announcement from the Chilean government regarding, uh, I guess, and people are calling it nationalizing. It's not fully nationalizing it. Um, you know, they're still honoring their contracts with SQM and Albemarle, who, uh, you know, they got contracts until 2030 and 2043, I believe, which they said they're not touching. So anything existing is okay, but they're saying in the future... You know, they want to partner with anybody that's doing any any business. So, you know, whilst it is kind of partly nationalizing, um, there are, it's already happened for the copper industry for them. So, you know, they're just kind of following down that route. Um, what what that means, I guess, is it becomes a little bit more risky. You, you know, you mentioned the um, the Albemarle share price and the valuation has come off something like nine or $10 billion. Mm. It, it just means the market doesn't like uncertainty. And whilst there's uncertainty around what's what's happening in Chile, the market will de-risk those those sort of assets and won't account for you know the full valuation there. And I guess going forward, it probably does have a bit of a, a jurisdictional risk for a, a few people. You know, if you have to deploy billions of dollars in development costs, and you know, potentially down the track, the government could change, or you know, they could reintroduce more laws, then. That's something that these developers and uh, will, will need to take into consideration going forward. So it's not something they can just go, yeah, happy to go. That's an easy country. And then I guess that opens up the priority to uh, to other jurisdictions. Well, because the Albemarle price, I noticed it's come from, you know, $290 a share with a market cap of, you know, $33 billion all the way back down to $21 billion with a lot of a lot of this noise, a lot of this sort of buzz about this this Chile sort of evolution with, with nationalizing it. But would you say that's more of like an overreaction from the market or do you think that's generally the the future now for, for companies that have to really reconsider sovereign risk as a, a potential uh, factor naturally with, with this movement now in Chile? Yes, sovereign risk is a, is a big part of it. You know, Bolivia is another one where it's got huge, um, you know, lithium resources. It's, it, it's in the same boat. And, you know, th- this is just the, the what investors are feeling. Are there, are there other investments out there that are producing that are of less risk from sovereignty, you know, some of the ones in Australia or, you know, in Canada or elsewhere, uh, are, are probably potentially a better fit. So that's, that's why the market is de-risked there. 
uh, for those two companies. Not, not they're still printing money, but they're still increasing their production. But the market investors just don't like uncertainty, and that's that's what's happened. So, and you people are kind of de-risking a little bit across the lithium space in general. We've had a a bit of a jump since the um, you know I think the last time we mentioned the the Lion Town takeover yeah. and. You know that was tr- that was trading about two forty five, and now here the the Lion Town prices is trading at two seventy five, which is twenty five cents above the two dollar fifty takeover price. So it it just means investors are willing to predict that there'll be a higher bid because uh, Albemarle really want that asset. Uh, is that because it's in Australia? Potentially, mm. that's a, a jurisdictional. Uh, which is safe, I guess. Yeah, well, and that sort of feeds into me with with all this news coming out of Chile. Uh, almost the Albemarle takeover of of Lion Town almost gets a bit more attention from their point of view because suddenly, you know, they're, they're trying to relocate their, their future, their, their understanding that there's going to be some changes. And as you said, it's not really till a lot of years down the track, but even still they're strategically trying to think of, of safer jurisdictions like Australia, Canada, and, and North America, for example. But I mean, when we're looking at that, it's hard to say when, when we think they're going to come back, but I mean, surely that's going to be a, a note again for, for the lithium space that the attraction towards these safer, secure jurisdictions is now going to be heightened because of a lot of this noise and activity. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, another highlight of it is uh, mineral resources blocking stake in, for the scheme of arrangement ESS, you know. It would all look like it was going through. Min resources bought their stake on market and they blocked the scheme of arrangement. That was meant to be at 40 cents. The stock's now trading at 44 or so. Uh, it, it just means that, you know, the, the majors are being more strategic about where these deposits go, especially when they're more advanced. They're going, okay, you've got a resource, you know, you know, what's there, what are the grading is. So people just aren't letting these things go for cheap. So it, it is becoming a bit more of a, you know, a bit more like chess for developed or more advanced deposits in jurisdictions like Australia, Canada, and the US, uh, even yeah. Africa as well. And and I mean, diving more in, into that, I mean, have you noticed any particular companies that have really been thriving? Uh, I mean, last time we spoke, the, the lithium sector was, there was seasonality factors. We talked about uh, Tesla and the Chinese sales as well, having an impact on it. And there's a lot to digest there, but what have you noticed really start changing now? And I mean, looking forward with, with seasonality, I've, I've heard it quite a few times, you know, sell in May and go away. And, and these these terms that are thrown around, do you see that having an impact of, of where we're going now and, and just what you've noticed over the past month, at least since we last spoke? I guess one of the things that's changed is the, um, and for some reason, it's a really telling factor when it it really shouldn't be. The spot market of the Chinese is, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because when you look at the quarterly earnings from the, you know, the PLS, the MinRes, the Albemarle's, they're saying they're getting really good contract prices, which are significantly higher than what the Chinese spot price is. Um, and I think probably in the last last kind of couple of days, three or four days, you've started to see the the uptick in the Chinese spot price. And you've, you've got to think a lot of the investment strategies as well, which probably people don't realize is tied to, you know, hedging across certain products and certain uh, trades. So let's just say hypothetically, there's some strategies out there which are shorting the lithium price because it was too high. In turn, after that, they go ahead and they short the stocks in the lithium market, which means they've got a you know a back-to-back piggyback trade on on their short position. Now the price has started to turn, you know, in the lithium spot price, people will start to go okay. Well, the shorts are starting to get a little bit squeezed as well, which means people will start to unwind their positions in the in the stock market as well, in the equities positions of their shorts. So. And you know, a prime example of a short squeeze was when the the takeover came for for Lion Town, and everyone had to go ahead and cover. Yeah. So you know, I think that people have got to realise that there are investment strategies out there that are designed for prices to maintain low, and eventually that sentiment will come, and then people will have to close these these positions in the market. 
Mm. I mean, it's a little bit off stop- off topic, but with with shorting, can you break down what that actually means uh, in regards to yeah, pretty much prioritizing or, or in a way hoping that a company goes goes down or, or a price goes down? Yeah. What is it, the the? the it's process? actually a funny one because you see this um, a lot of commentary of people talking about oh Goldman Sachs or Credit Suisse or State Street have they've taken a stake in this lithium company and you know it must be a good thing. If you go through you know the the agreements when they become a substantial shareholder, they're actually loan agreements. So what will happen is the custodian, they'll have a client, Goldman Sachs, for instance, will have a client that wants to go short the stock. They'll go into the market and they'll get the stock. They will then have a loan agreement to that particular client who, who's, then, who's then shorting the stock. They're selling it. Uh, so they don't actually own the stock at the time. The custodian will go in there and acquire the stock. Their loan agreement will give it to the company that's looking to short it. The company will then start short uh, selling the stock. So they didn't have the stock. They borrow it off someone. And then they sell it into the market. And what they do, their idea is to buy it at a lower price at a future time. Yes, I'll come to almost manipulating the the outcome of a stock or a commodity or even a but share. Again, it might be tied to the, you know, people looking at lithium price. They might have a short on the on the, the carbonate price in China. And then they're going, right, to, to, to go with that, we're going to short some of these lithium stocks as well. So they'll have to go borrow from, a, you know, from one of the, the major banks and then they can repay that at a later date once they've achieved their sort of set price. And it's happening across lots of the, the once they're included in a certain index, mm. you know, the, the, inst- the hedge funds love it because they can go in there and take a position and then start shorting it. It just kind of typically happens once the guys go into the ASX 300 or 200. But yeah, it's, it's actually quite interesting. People kind of saying that, you know, Goldman's have taken a stake. No, Gold- no Goldman's don't have a props rating desk. They haven't done that since the GFC. So you know, what that actually means is that if you go through the, the statements a bit further, there's, um, yeah, they're the, the loan agreements in there and people are shorting the stock. So interesting. It's something that it just remains quite funny when I see people seeing that. Exactly. Well, and it's the, the old, the surface level of it is, is everyone thinks, oh, they're buying the stock, but when you actually dig deeper into it and I was watching a, a you know, an ASX webinar yesterday about options in particular and, and shorting and all this and and that, you know, the everyday investor might not be able to get access to it, but you just know these big players are doing this all the time because that's where really all the money is made. And in a way, they've got very limited risk in some aspects, um, but they're making ridiculous returns out of it or setting it up so that they can strategically buy into it. And I mean, I think it was last time China, especially with the spot price, there was some sort of floor put in. Uh, was was that from the government or where was that? Uh they were talking about it. it was more of a you know a rumor rather yeah. than a fact sort of thing. But what you've happened in China is the the lithium refiners are um, you know mining lapidolite, which is a, mm. a lower quality of of, of right. lithium, and they've all now the prices come down. They're not actually making any money. So what's happened is those guys have all shut down, which means there's less supply out there. Yeah. So again, it's it's too early in to kind of see that the you know the Chinese spot market is is actually uh, making a difference. But you know, the, you can see that there has been a bounce in the last couple of days of lithium stocks on the back of the, you know, the lithium spot price uh, in China kind of going up. So it's a weird one. When Again, when you look at the quarterlies of a lot of the majors, they're getting contract prices significantly higher um, than, than kind of what's going on in the spot price. So there's definitely, for, for the big guys, people want security of supply. They won't have to go to the spot. Uh, they prefer to get security and pay that extra little bit of a premium to make sure that they've continually got it because we still see EV demand and you know car sales outstripping uh, supply of, of lithium anyway. So there was a, a Elon Musk tweeted the other day for the US in particular that they currently produce like twenty thousand metric tons of of lithium carbonate equivalent at the moment, and they need by twenty thirty five they need thirty five times that. 
Yeah. And, you know, lithium, I think I've mentioned this before, lithium mines don't just come online no. in like, you know, a heartbeat. They can take between, you know, eight to, to 15 years to kind of potentially get online. So, you know, the, the yes, whilst there is a, a bit of an overhang in supply at the moment, the demand will continue to outstrip and it, it's just going to go in cycles for a, a lot longer. And I mean, we we mentioned it uh, before going on air with, with Tesla and, and even the reduction, the Inflation Reduction Act in America and, and what that's going to start having uh, potentials in, in the lithium space. I mean, what developments are you seeing there already over that short period of time that that, you know, $360 billion is, is that checkbook is open for, for companies and, and even free trade agreements with, with the United States? Yeah, there's a bit of a price war going on with the, the car makers at the moment. You can see Tesla. Uh, lowered their prices just recently as well. Um, and again, bringing them down brings them into that uh, Inflation Reduction Act tax credit, which is $7,500. Uh, you know, people will be getting a rebate on. So I think there's a lot of jostling around to make sure you're within that because then that's going to be, you're, you're going for volume. Then you know everyone's going to buy a car in that bracket mm. because they know they're going to get a $7,500 rebate. So I think what we're seeing is a, a tussle for, um, for for market share, I guess, at the moment. And I think we'll continue to see that. And a lot of cheaper cars are coming out at the moment. So they're all going to fall within this rebate place as well. And you know, as these milestones of you know phasing out uh, combustible engines get closer, you know, people are just going to be forced. You're not going to go, oh, well, I'm going to go out and buy a combustible engine car when it's it, I'm not going to be able to kind of use it in you know five years or 10 years. Yeah. People are just automatically converting. Yeah. Saying, Even in Australia, one in five are electric at the moment. So. Yeah. No, and I was going to say, it's like the whole adage that, you know, as soon as you start reducing the ability to get access to it, people just transition. I always think back to the shops, for example, when everyone had the checkout counters and then all of a sudden these machines came there and you had to do the self-checkout and this massive sort of hesitancy. And I remember my, my dad would, would hate going towards these things. He, he just got so frustrated with it. But now it's almost like that is how you shop. You don't ever see someone at the counter. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a, a stretch to compare that to electric cars in a way, but you can just see that as we do quickly, quickly, quickly get to this EV future that, you know, getting a, a diesel or a gas car is, is almost going to be harder to source and it almost becomes a luxury or a, a unique ability to have one because everything is going to be built and incentivized for, for the EV trade. Um, and, you know, I haven't necessarily looked at all the stats with, with how much these cars are, are making comparatively to their traditional methods, but I can imagine that is very quickly swinging, but it all falls back to where the commodities, where the mines, where the resources and these companies, as we say, with huge checkbooks are just getting ready to, to acquire and, and go go ballistic with it. Yeah. And you, you, what we're finding in the cycle at the moment is for, again, going back to the takeovers and that is it's everything's come off. So whilst everything was peaking the last couple of years, prices were high, valuations were high. They've all started to uh, come back. And this is where we started to see the M&A activity come up because the majors go, right, well, now's the time to buy when things are cheap. So let's go out there and let's do some acquisitions and... You'll see some consolidation in spaces. You'll see some deposits that are picked up because it's cheaper than what it was a couple of years ago. So again, strategically acquiring some of the assets in the right regions, you know, the, the big guys come out and do this at a time where you know companies are vulnerable. They're trading off their highs, and it's not just in the the mining space. But it, you know, you look at Silk Laser Clinics getting acquired by uh, West Farmers, for instance. You know, this is just the, that part of the cycle where mm. valuations are cheap and clever people will take advantage of that. So I think that's almost a, goes without saying that, you know, all these fortunes have been made where the reality kicks in that some companies are in an unfortunate position. Um, it, it's almost just the, the natural progression and that the market cycle is that these companies that are looking for lifelines 
it almost becomes the only option. And then these companies that have incredible checkbooks and incredible resources available can just come and take it. And then, you know, five, six times increase it or even more the, the value of, of the share. And I mean, that is definitely the, the phase we're looking at. And it goes back to, you know, the Lion Town acquisition and there's no shortage of other noise in the lithium sector. But we were talking beforehand about, you know, North America in particular and the changing season. I mean, what is that going to have a role in the exploration side and, and even the activity within the North American and, and Canadian um, uh, companies? I think this is quite quite important for the juniors that have recently acquired assets or state claims in, in North America during winter. They probably haven't been out there and done a lot of field work. Uh, so I think, you know, between like May and sort of October is when you can really get out there and so it's become some you can do your field work and, you know, do your rock chip sampling, send people out, fly your heli uh, helicopters and whatnot. So, you know, that's only just going to start happening for a lot of the juniors now. So we should really start to see a lot of news flow come over the next, you know, three to six months, which will be good. I think a lot of them have, you know, got that initial euphoria of, you know, oh, we're near, you know, Patriot Battery Metals, we're near um, Winston Resources, you know. They're, they're basing on neurology, but now the first field season's coming out where they can actually get out there. And you know, again, so in summer in Australia, people typically drill, mm. but over in, over in North America, you typically don't drill in somebody because it's too soft to get the rigs out there. So, you know, whilst they go out there and do their field programs now, identify the pegmatite outcrops or whatever they can find, they'll identify targets to go out there and drill. The drilling probably won't happen between, you know, December and kind of February, March next year is when the, the drilling will start to happen. So, you know, you're, you're really only just starting to get to the, you know, the crux of when results and that'll start to come out. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a real interesting kind of season coming up for a lot of juniors. You know, there's a lot of satellite imagery work being done, identifying, you know, people, but until you get on the ground and you really start, you know, doing some, you know, some, some real work out there, it's, it's, it's very speculative. And you can see a lot of the companies that ran up just on acquiring have, have slightly come back and capital is a lot harder to come by now as well. So people are looking at quarterly statements going, right, drilling costs this much, staff costs this much. Are they going to have enough for the next six months or, mm. you know, 12 months? Or, you know, are they going to become raising the market at some point? So a lot of people are really assessing, you know, where these companies are truly at. And again, you can see a lot of them have come back significantly in valuation. Yeah, well, it's such an interesting point about the the weather, for example. I don't think many people or many listeners would even consider that, you know, the, the weather in Australia is, is pretty good almost all year round and you can operate and, and really get a lot of hands-on activity happening. There'd definitely be moments where you can't, but America's such, or, you know, the United States and Canada are such a different jurisdiction or even other parts of the world, you know, you can't necessarily be out on the field all the time, which again, extends these timelines and, you know, continuously say, you know, the, the shutdowns for mines and, and now, you know, we're still feeling the effects of trying to get these processes up and running and, and even just resuming where projects are. And of course the, the cash implications are, are huge and, and companies are now, you know, they're in that balancing act of, can we go to market? We're diluting current shareholders. What's in the best interest of, of everyone. And you know, I, mean, I can't imagine it's, it's an easy there, job. There's less, there's less capital to be deployed at the moment as well. I think it's, it's been our quietest first quarter ever, I think. So yeah, you know, it, it, people aren't just kind of handing money out left, right, and center. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be kind of strategic about who you're selecting and whether the money can be done. I have seen a couple of, you know, junior resources companies acquire or kind of, you know, get ready for a field season coming up in the North American market. Mm. And, you know, they've got the smaller raises away between $2 million, $3 million. It's been quite easy. But as you mentioned, Latin resources went out for $37 million. And I think that was at a you know half a cent discount and they got it away. And it's, it's trading, you know, 
20%, 25% above that price. So, you know, I guess it just depends which stage of um, the cycle and where your assets are. But there is still more to come, I believe. You know, discoveries will be made. Uh, it's, we're still only in our infancy. This is a, you know, a decade-long sort of cycle. But you will have its ups and downs. You know, the mm. price will go up, the price will go down. It's uh, it's it's going to be an interesting kind of six to twelve months, I think. Yeah, and I mean, looking forward, I mean, what what's going to be the most exciting factor for you? I mean, I, I touch on it, and I saw another article today, in particular AI um, uh, and sort of the ramifications and the issues involving that. And I saw there was a uh, a heavily involved um, executive at, at Google, I think, has just come out and, and resigned and saying the exact thing that he, he sees a real fear in that market. But I mean, do you see there's other opportunities that are really going to take off in the next um, sort of six to 12 months outside of it? Um, I just see AI as one of these ones that it's it's taking off exponentially quickly and there's calls to sort of halt it because we've got this fear about who knows what we're unleashing on, on the world. But what else are you seeing moving in activity outside of commodities? Uh, I mean, out, I mean, I'll stay in commodities. I think another one is copper. Is, mm. is probably another strategic one. Um, is is quite quite uh, sought after. Gold's been again been doing quite well. So, I still think they'll have their day in the sun. And you know, good results will get rewarded in the market. Outside of 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 the, the, the kind of mineral sector, mm. um, I just recently did a deal in a, a sweepstakes casino company. Um, so you know, social sweepstakes gaming. Um, so what do they do? So, so there was a company sitting in uh, in this very boardroom actually back in 2013 called uh, Virtual Gaming World. I'm sure you've probably mm-hmm. uh, heard of them before. Yep. And uh, you know we we listened to the presentation. I think the valuation at that stage was about 100 mil Aussie or 10 cents a share. And uh, you know we thought it was crazy. You know mm. the company was valued at 100 mil, was making no revenue. We we passed on it. Um, and you know. You look at that story now; they're, they're probably undervalued at five and six billion, yeah. which is why they're kind of doing a, a shareholder buyback at, I think it's six dollars fifty a share. So, and they've been paying dividends; they paid out like three dollars in dividends over the last kind of two or three mm. years. So people have made their money back; they've got you know their position still; they can do the the sell down. So that's just a, a learning curve for me, I guess, from investments. You yep. always don't make the right decisions, but what do you learn from it? Um, had a client of mine who's developed something similar and actually made money in the whole VGW sort of, um, wave and euphoria, which has been great. And yeah, just kind of backed these guys in good couple of founders, young kids out of uh, Miami. And, uh, I, I'm really kind of excited about, uh, I guess the, not just the tech space, cause I think the valuations I touched on it last time have, have come back, but I think luck-based gambling actually becomes more of a a thing mm. in, in, uh, in times of recession because people think they, they kind of gamble that little bit. They can, you know, make their way out of any sort of financial problems that are in. Yep. So yeah, I kind of, we took a little bit of a, um, a risk, I guess we took, we did, took, did three months worth of due diligence. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it kind of took a, a stake in this company and they're about to go live in, you know, mid, mid May, I okay. believe. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that goes and you know, how their launch goes and what problems they run into. Mm. And how much traction they get, and because it's a North American thing, but you know we're we're hoping that kind of follows that sort of trajectory that um you know the VGW yeah. has gone on, and the US gaming market and you know sports betting market, you know, I think the other Aussie company, uh, well not Aussie, but Stake dot com, I think everyone's quite aware of. I think they're doing 120 million EBITDA per month and growing continually. So you know that's kind of why I'm looking at a few of these. There's another one out of the European market called Pulse. 
who do about 250, 300 million rev. They only started two or three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of, again, getting set in a valuation of a company very early on and doing an initial seed round, working with the founders, you know, I'm excited to see where that goes as the cycle progresses. And, you know, you know, I'd like to think we're probably at our low points at the moment and, you know, the, the market will start to kind of track over the next couple of years. So getting set early and, you know, developing a company and get it to a stage where you can get an exit. Uh, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite excited for that prospect. Um, so that, that's kind of my venture off into the technology yeah. space for now. And I think it'll be an interesting company to follow over the next kind of six to 12 months. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, Cause even going back to, to some of the U S stocks that, you know, even we touched about it in, in earlier chats that had been smashed and their stock price have come down. And then, you know, I don't think, you know, in times that have been a bit rough, people necessarily turn a blind eye and, and look away. And there has actually been some really positive returns in, in big companies like, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, they've all bounded off their lows. I mean, you could say almost market darlings, but that's the the top line level that a lot of these companies that yeah have been smashed and people have ignored potentially from you know the the March February time um, have in a way missed out on on these emphatic rises and I think that's uh, it's a state that you know market's still iffy you know interest rates are still that looming um, cloud over people's heads there's you know the talks of um, inflation still but I think that sort of simmering. Um, and if you said, you know, there's the mergers and acquisitions, but then it leads into the next stage, which is, you know, the IPOs come again, the, the ease and ability to get capital starts opening up. And I mean, yeah, that's sort of my ambition for it. But again, it's sort of unprecedented times. No one really knows what the outlook is kind of looking like. The Nasdaq's the best kind of performing sector so far this year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it has bounced back and I think what, if you crunch the numbers, which a lot of the analysts have across the investment banks, you'll see. A lot of companies have shed the what I would call fat mm. um, from from their balance sheets and uh, from their staffing. Do we really need to do this? No, probably not. So they've trimmed right down. Realized capital is not easy. Capital is not cheap anymore. So they you know they turn themselves profitable. They've gained their market share when when you know borrowing money was was cheap. Now borrowing money is expensive. They trim down. They become profitable, and that's where you know you start to see the share price increases going. And you know earnings season. So far in the US mm. has actually been quite good. Yeah. You've seen a few people outperform uh, on earnings per share and, and you know revenue wise. So yeah, I, I think that you know the, the tech sector will continue as they can. There's still people cutting staff now, yeah. and you'll start to see these you know balance sheets start to look a lot healthier and you know really start to probably turn some profits, which previously they were just aiming for growth and capture of the market. And it's okay, we'll, we'll turn profitable in the future. Well, now is that future, and this is when I think you're going to start to see some really good kind of uh, uh, changes in, in the tech sector. Okay. Okay. And then, I mean, we, we touched on it, or you mentioned it just before, the, the gold and, and, and copper in particular. I mean, gold, I mean, even last time we spoke, we're still sitting around that that breakout zone. It's almost in a way accumulating or just pausing. Um, I've tried to follow gold for the past, you know, two or three years and can never quite pick it. I don't think many people have, but it's always been in that that weird sort of element. I mean, what do you think is going to be the catalyst for that to potentially break out? And and what is that going to then feed into the junior explorers, the the big tier companies? I mean, Northern Stars, and but then of course lower down the chain, those smaller companies that are in that space. I think a declining US dollar uh, will definitely help the gold sector. So yeah, the the US dollar has kind of strengthened a lot recently. So I, yeah, as as that starts to come off a little bit, as they you know potentially start to cut interest rates in the U.S. are already starting. A lot of the inflation figures are really starting to, you know, fall off a cliff. 
So, you know, we'll see what the Fed does over the next couple of months. If you start to see a decline in the in the value of the US dollar, we'll start to see gold go up and that will probably what, you know, what sees the breakout uh, mm. happen, I guess, at the end of the day. So, yeah, I think that's what, that's the catalyst that will, you know, push it beyond it's, you know, it's sitting around 2000, it's chopping, it's trading and yeah. hasn't really broken out of this range. Um, so, yeah, I think once that happens, we should start to see uh, a breakout towards the 2100, the 2200 and, you know, it obviously has a positive effect on a lot of the producers uh, making better margins. A lot of the companies that had assets that, you know, weren't profitable previously start to become profitable. So, yeah, I think you'll see an increase in, you know, people building mines based on the fact of a new, a, a higher gold price for a longer period of time. So, yeah, and you, you'll see discoveries kind of start to come. I think we're already seeing a few, you know, IPOs sort of come through. I think we've got a, a one or two kind of coming in, mm. in the Africa region which is quite exciting. Um, you know, the African place seem to be doing very well at the moment. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole idea for me is, is thinking that, you know, gold has been accumulating. It's been bounding off almost a, a triple top where it's approached this all-time high, you know, three times. And as soon as it breaks out, I mean, the, the obvious question is how high and how far can it run? And, and that's the, the exciting bit. I mean, historically looking at when gold's broken out of, of channels, at least in the spot price, it's had this emphatic rise and it's just been a matter of you just enjoy it until naturally it, it um, accumulates again at, at a certain level but I mean sitting here it, it's hard to see but I mean it's going to be great I mean the, if the US dollar comes down that's also amazing for Australian gold producers um, but you know there's so many factors that are going to be you know so good for from not just Australian but for entire gold producers but then I mean shifting to, to copper as well I mean I spoke with, with Jack Sedwich uh, last week um, from Casilla Copper uh, and we talked about the the outlook for copper, which again has got to have an incredible um, run based on on EV, and and even the the current um, cycle of it is so vastly different to where copper has been before, uh, w which gives it a, a different again flavour. Um, so w where else do you see that um, going that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I think we're seeing declining grades in the places like Chile and Peru as well. You know, they they've got through a lot of the high grade stuff, so you're getting lower grades, which is a lot harder to process. You're seeing social unrest in countries like that as well, which lowers the production. And again, we, you know, with the whole, the, the whole EV thematic and decarbonization hasn't abated or anything like that. It's not, it, it's not as though we don't need more copper, lithium, nickel, you know, all that sort of stuff. We still do. We're just in a different cycle of, mm. uh, economically, I guess through that, that, that was different to the last couple of years where interest rates were low. So, you know, the, these things are all still going on in the background. It's just, it'll take a little bit of time for the cycle to come back and we'll start, you know, there was a, an article on the Wall Street Journal, um, I think last week, saying, you know, this will inevitably lead to a mining boom. So we're still in our infancies of, of a mining boom. You know, once the, you know, again, the economic cycle comes back and starts to roar back, everyone starts realizing, hey, you know, actually we need more mines. We need, we need this, we need that. It hasn't caught up. You know, we'll, we'll start to see a lot more increases in prices and valuation. But Again, going back to why the, the majors are starting to, to use their balance sheets and their structures to acquire assets whilst they're cheap, because they already know this is happening. They're being mm. very strategic about, you know, copper, for instance, you look at the Oz Minerals, uh, you know, BHP yep. taking that. So, you know, you're looking at those guys to acquire things, plug and play and go, yep, we're going to increase our production because we know in the future that the prices are going to go higher, but they do all their, their groundwork whilst, you know, sentiment's low and valuations are low. Mm. buy low sell high i guess no yeah the stock market <laughs> yeah well and they're in a fortunate position where they can they can't afford to do it uh i think yeah the 
the everyday investor naturally doesn't quite have the same um, ability just to, <laughs> to go and do no, it. Everyone. everyone that I talk to seems to uh, buy high, sell low. So exactly. Yeah. Definitely opposite. Everyone's, everyone's very good at that. Um, and then you see, you know, that's why, you know, the masters of the trade do exceptionally well. And they can, as we've talked about, you know, remove the emotional component of it and just look at all the, the fundamentals, the tailwinds and, and really have a strategic outlook and, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's good things out there. There's a couple of things trading, you know, at or below cash. Mm. Um, it's funny that the whole SPAC market has kind of really fallen in a heap. And, you know, over here, we still, we, we just call them shells, right? There's yeah. lots of companies with cash and assets. They're looking for a new asset, um, but some of them are trading below cash backing. So eventually at some stage, you know, they will acquire a new asset. They will do something with the, the listed company. And they'll go on a run from there. So it's it's almost kind of if you can find these companies that are, you know, looking to strategically acquire something else, they've got cash, they don't need to do a raise in the market. There, there are good bargains out there to be had. And, you know, you just have to be patient. Yeah. It, it's not all kind of going to happen like it was in the last couple of years where things were just moving and running and everybody had money in the market. You know, all that money that was there has kind of been taken out and people are offsetting mortgages or people are using it for the cost of living. So that free money that people once had they, they don't have that at their disposal anymore, which is effectively the LBA doing their job correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just goes back to, yeah, a lot of people had a lot of fun in that, you know, 2020, 2021 rise. And then that, um, we've talked about that, that shoot down to the negative, um, and people have, have naturally had to tighten the belts and readjust what they're doing. But then, you know, the underlying, um, premises that there are still these needs, the demand is still there. It's still going to start increasing. And what is already increasing, it's just about, you know, if you're in a position that you can capitalize on those returns and, and that future growth. But I mean, um, this has been an excellent discussion. I mean, we've ticked over the, the usual sort of <laughs> landmark. I mean, I wanted to touch more a bit quickly on, on the banking sector. Um, I don't know if you've got some, some information shed on that. I know particularly with the US with the, the banking issue, but have you got any thoughts on that? I think it was the JP Morgan. Um, taking yeah, I mean, the, JP the Morgan just took out First Republic again. Yeah. Actually, not able, meant to be able to, they actually adjusted some laws yeah. how to take it out. Um, you know, they were just bad decisions. I think that some of the chief risk officers at these companies didn't adequately take into account interest rates going up so significantly. So, yeah, just poor, poor mismanagement of balance sheets at the mm. end of the day. A lot of the, a lot of the banks are fine, the regional stuff, you know. Yeah. It's, it, it's just a couple of them that, uh, you know, really didn't do very well at it. And, you know, they just, it shouldn't really be happening, but I mm. guess you learn and, the banks are in a better position today. Like JP Morgan just can keep absorbing these. And they, they, you know, they've got a process that this happens. This is what we do. We don't let, you know, the, the crisis of previous, that's why there's not a lot of volatility in what's going. You look at the VIX, which is a volatile index. Yes. That's it. That's at 16. It's kind of, you know, you don't, you won't wake up really and see a thousand to 2000 point drop on the Dow, you know? So you, know, you can go to sleep at night, hopefully knowing the fact that, yeah, okay, there'll be some sort of volatility, but, you know, the VIX being so low, they'll always kind of come back in and buy the market. But, you know, I, I don't think it's a contagious thing. No, mm. you even heard Jamie Dimon, the, um, uh, the CEO of uh, JP Morgan, uh, said, you know, we don't see this as, a, as many other banks having this problem. So, yeah. um, you know, we're happy. We're happy to see that the banking crisis is effectively over. Yes, there might be one or more, two more that have got, you know, a bit of an issue, but we don't see this happening to, you know, 20, 30, 40 mm. That domino um, effect. Yeah. 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 So I think, you know, it instills confidence in the market that someone like that coming out and saying, you know, we're, we're pretty kind of happy with where the banks are at. You know, they've obviously got a little bit more knowledge than yeah. what you or I do. So yeah. 
yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's probably definitely blown a little bit more out of proportion than what it needed to be. But you know, I guess I guess they now they learn and they'll regulate and red tape will come in and you can't do this, you can't do that, which will make sure this doesn't happen again in the future. So, you know, whilst there's a bit of chaos going around, you always live and learn. And, you know, again, again, markets are still bouncing. So whilst there has been this turmoil and volatility in banks, you know, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Dow, they're all still up for the year. So, you know, where, where are they going to finish? We had such a bad year, you know, last year where we were down. Typically, I think I mentioned in my first podcast, we go on a, a one or two or three year kind of, you know, it, it's not going to go up 100% straight away, but over mm. that period, you may be able to increase kind of 30 to 40% on the back of a really kind of black swan event. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I think it's, you know, the, the banking sector with these JP Morgans and even thinking back to, to UBS as well, taking over Credit Suisse, it's another um, example of, you know, absorbing badly run companies and, and unfortunate positions. And, you know, it's easy to say it from this position, but it's just, Good from credit, their point of view. Credit Swiss should have gone a long time ago. Yeah, like it was, it was badly run for years and years, and yeah, since the know, GFC, it, really they should have should have let it go a long time ago. It's oh no, we'll keep it going, we'll keep it yeah. going. But you know, they consolidate. Someone else comes along. Someone else gets bigger, and uh, the industry's moved on, which is good to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, thank you. It's been a comprehensive update on on everything that's happening in the markets, and and I know I'll be getting you back probably in the next month to touch on on what's been changing because, yeah, naturally everything evolves so quickly in the markets. And, um, yeah, thank you for taking the time to speak with me on the show today, Keith. No, mate, always a pleasure. And uh, looking forward to the next one, hopefully with a few more uh, takeovers or uh, mm. movements in the lithium yeah, sector Yeah, some as exciting, always. Some exciting changes and acquisitions happening out there. Yeah, no, great. Beautiful. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Markable Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to like and subscribe. You can follow The Market Bull on our socials at Twitter and LinkedIn by searching The Market Bull. You can also subscribe to our newsletter on the website by visiting www.themarketbull.com.au.